Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. With me are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. Evan, who is on the program, sir? This week, I talked to Patricia Evangelista, who is a journalist from the Philippines. She's an investigative reporter. She worked for a news outlet called Rappler, which you may have heard of because Maria Ressa, the editor-in-chief of Rappler, won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. And Patricia wrote a book recently called Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country. And it's about the drug war, the quote unquote drug war instituted by the president, Rodrigo Duterte, which essentially involved extrajudicial killings of many, many alleged drug addicts, drug dealers. It was a sort of all out war on the population of the Philippines. Many, many thousands of people died and she covered it regularly for Rappler. And this book kind of takes those experiences and puts them into a narrative form. Pretty amazing book. It's about some pretty dark aspects of humanity, uh, which we talk about in detail here. So I'd wanted to talk to her for a while and we covered everything from how she got started to how she was able to sort of cover this level of killing and murder day after day after day. You spent some time in the Philippines, no? I did. Actually, my reporting, it didn't really overlap with hers, but I was reporting on a period earlier than hers about a drug kingpin who was operating freely in the Philippines. And then the Duterte thing was just sort of starting when I started my reporting. So it was interesting to talk to her about sort of some of the differences. I mean, the obviously huge differences in what she was covering from what I was covering, but to sort of see it from the perspective of having been there and not reported on the day to day and to see how she was able to do it. it was, it's quite incredible. We are uh, brought to you in a partnership with Vox Media. Uh, they help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over there. And now here's Evan with Patricia Evangelista. Pat, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course, I want to talk about the book and your reporting, which is, I find it to be a, an astounding book, even more so maybe because I did a little bit of reporting in the Philippines and that made me even more just blown away by what you were able to 
to do in the book. But I, I first wanted to talk about something that you do walk through in the book, which is sort of your slightly unusual way of getting into journalism. <laughs> and maybe I would probably start it with this speech competition, but maybe you would start it earlier. So tell a little bit of that story. Well, uh, I was a trained debater, you know, co collegiate debate. And I never intended to be a writer. I was planning to be a lawyer. And your way to law is to take debate. And I read a lot, but it was debate that got me fired up mm -hmm. because it was argumentation and it was language and it was structure. It was all of that. And then I went to the University of the Philippines, which is the state university in the capital. And I joined the debate team there too. And when I did, I think two years in, we hosted a competition and there was a side program, public speaking. Of course, I didn't want to join because it wasn't, you know, the competitive wrangling. It was for hearts and minds and smile. And I got signed up anyway because it was my university that hosted it and I was largely incompetent at organization. So I showed up, <laughs> you know, to fill the numbers and I won. It was about a borderless world. It was an extemporaneous speech on whatever you want to say about more globalized world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite realize then, but winning the national one meant I was going to have to go to England and represent the Philippines. And I spoke of, you know, all the overseas Filipino workers working everywhere else. I talked about how the hobbits of the Shire came home eventually. I talked about how this blessed earth that is England gave a home to Filipinos. All that shit. <laughs> and um, it was an easy thing to do in so far as the topic because my family, a lot of my family had left. For the mm. Philippines, it's you go to greener pastures, you go to the States or somewhere else because life is better elsewhere. And we were a f former colony. So in that regard, I understood what it was to be left behind. But I also understood what it was to make that very difficult choice. And because it was public speaking before a largely Anglo audience, I was a representative of the colonies, delighted by the future and pleased by the present. So I won that one too. You won the international competition, which was, there was a huge number of people from all over the world that entered into this competition. Yes. Yes. I was the Filipino representative and we should have had two, but we couldn't afford it. So it was just me. Uh, it was my first flight out alone. Uh, it was terrifying but it was i guess it was what we did you know if you're a debater i guess public speaking was largely the same only you smiled <laughs> and and i won and i didn't quite know the implications of that until i got home and it was on the front page everywhere because it was a hopeful story young filipino goes off and then trounces the white people so um i shook hands with the late Prince Philip at Buckingham Palace. I was on top of floats. I had my hand shook in shopping malls with people who say I'm the national treasure. Mm. And uh, I got a television hosting gig out of it, everything. It was uh, surprising and uh, not particularly suited to someone of my personality. 
I swore too much and I wasn't very comfortable with large groups of humanity. I'm largely introverted and I'm a good performer. You can push me and then I can make something happen, but then I disappear. So, but what I did understand was that at that point, in that moment, I had a role and it was mascot for hope. And I tried very hard, but um, I'm not built for the camera and I'm not built for hope, I think. <laughs> yeah, when, when that was over, uh, I lasted only as long as I was in college. All the TV gigs and all the, you know, endorsement things, I lasted only as long as I needed to last to pay for my college degree. Because we weren't very well off and it, it came at the right time. So I did that. And the moment I could, I quit. And then I applied as a production assistant at the news channel. I just thought it seemed like the right place to be. I didn't, again, intend to be a journalist. Part of the gig of all the publicity was I got a column at the National Daily. But I talked about high heels and travel <laughs> That all felt very uncomfortable, but I felt I didn't have the right to talk about current affairs and anything else because I didn't know anything. Hmm. My degree was in communications. I was never formally trained as a journalist, so I defaulted the language. If you look back now, you know, on the speech you gave or the, the columns that you wrote right after that when you were young... How do you feel about those sentiments? Like, did you feel like they were authentic sentiments that you had then... Or that you were being sort of put in a position where you had to write things and you had to say things out of a requirement from other people? I think I was cognizant of the fact I was representing the Philippines. And I also had an upbringing that, that was hopeful. We weren't very well off, but we believed, you know, we were largely liberal. We believed in language. We believed in, in learning. I, I grew up with quite a lot of books. Mm. And I also, even that young, understood what my role was supposed to be. That I was supposed to be grateful. And I was supposed to be hopeful. And I was supposed to say pleasing things about my country. At that moment, all of that for me was true. Not something I would naturally say, but put in that position. Sure, it was true, and it was grand, and it is wonderful how my people have been resilient across across <laughs> centuries. But I didn't touch on the fact we were forced to be resilient. Mm -hmm. And I knew not to touch that. So when I was doing all the travel writing and all the all the, again, Pollyanna things, that, that was uncomfortable. And if you ask about the quality of my writing, it sucked, man. Well, everyone's, everyone's writing sucks when they're, when they're young. Yeah. <laughs> so you start getting into, you, you then become a TV producer more behind the scenes, not mm -hmm. being on camera as much. And you start, you know, you're working on documentaries and, and start mm -hmm. moving more and more towards hard news, harder issues. And what brought you to Rappler? What sort of eventually took you into sort of being a, a real kind of like newspaper reporter, you know, in quotes, newspaper? Right. 
While I was working for the News Network, I was also writing a column for the newspaper of record. It was called the Philippine Daily Inquirer. And while I understood they hired me because I was grammatical, you still have a platform of about 1,500 words every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I kept trying to fill that harmlessly. And then sometime in, I think maybe my my senior year in college or just after I graduated, that was the time where the government had decided that the communists were the enemy. Every government needs a war. And this was the war they decided to fight. So two young women had been disappeared from my university. Not the verb disappeared. They didn't disappear. Someone disappeared them. And... They were both young women. They both went to the same bathroom I did, the same cafeteria. And I didn't quite understand how this was possible. And because I had been feted for a time by the government and because I, I, I was careful about whatever I said, maybe I bought the Kool-Aid or maybe I was just very optimistic about the state of my government. So I couldn't believe that we were in the business of torture and kidnapping and murder. So I went out. I went to the courtrooms. I spoke to the families. I interviewed the man they called the butcher of Southern Luzon, a general who had been accused of having massacred and kidnapped quite a number of suspected communists. And um, it was many years. I did it for many years until eventually Major General Jovito Palparan was put in jail. But in the time that it took to do that, I found myself going from funeral to funeral and massacre to massacre and disaster after disaster. If you're going to be a trauma journalist, the Philippines is a place with many stories. So I learned that I believed the women. I believed also that if I wrote about it and wrote about it well, maybe it would stop. It's not true. But by the time I realized that, I was too deep in. So I kept doing it. And how do you describe trauma reporting? Like, what it, what is it to you? It is hard to describe the beat I do without saying very often they involved people who had died. And it seemed like a, an unfair way to frame it. It didn't quite seem right. And... I think sometime in 2015, I took a fellowship with a DART Center for Trauma and Journalism. And that's when I found the word for it. Because sometimes there's no dead body. Or sometimes there's 6,000. But the function is the same. That the people you speak to have gone through enormous, painful trauma. And then there is a way to cover it that minimizes that trauma. So I found a language for it. And it was like uh, putting on a shirt that finally fit, you know. Mm. I don't cover the dead. I cover trauma. It was simpler and it was more proper, I think. And what was it about Rappler, the publication, that sort of enabled you to cover it in the way you did Right. Even before Rappler, I was doing it, maybe I was doing it for maybe five years already. Mm -hmm. There was a massacre south of the Philippines. We call it the Maguindanao Massacre. It happened in the province of Maguindanao. It was in the run-up to the 
national elections. There was a position for governor that was being fought over. And there was a local warlord who wanted the position, another one who also wanted it. And in in an attempt to stop someone from running, he was filing his certificate of candidacy. He had sent his wife, his lawyers, a parcel of journalists to file it for him, and all 58 people died. They were massacred by the side of the hill. And the reason it is remembered all over the world was because it is the highest toll of murdered journalists one day. 32 died that day. And that was the first time I really saw death that close. It was my first corpse. I went to the funerals. I never saw a body in the ground. So I did that long before Rappler. Mm -hmm. But I was working for ABS-CBN and the people who ran my department, the news channel, as well as the person who ran ABS-CBN were also the people who set up Rappler eventually. Maria Ressa would go on to win a Nobel Peace Prize. But at that time, they said we were opening a company and you can do what you always do. I like that. (laughs) <laughs> so I followed. Mm-hmm. And Rappler, across a drug war and across many years, understood that even if we were a small company, it was important to allow at least one reporter to go off and do this. In the beginning, we had 12 reporters. So it was a major investment to allow one to run off and do this. They understood across the disasters, across the drug war, across everything. And I'm always grateful for that. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Calling all female runners, it's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, 
The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You were already covering disasters, these these various traumatic events, and then there starts to be the ramp up for the 2016 election. Yes. And I was there in 2015, and I think Duterte had just declared not that much before, and I just remember people not really taking him seriously, and that there was, I can't remember the name of the guy who was sort of the designated uh, successor who everyone assumed was going to win. And can you describe for people, and there may be some resonance here with, you know, an election here in the U.S. in 2016, what that was like as a reporter to experience? I didn't cover the actual election. I wrote analysis for it instead. Mm-hmm. So in the run-up to the elections, I and a sociologist, her name is Nicole Curato, came up with a series called The Imagine President. So... All five candidates, we pulled out the narrative arcs of each candidate, and we broke down what it was that the people wanted, what the people imagined, what their oppositionists demonized them over, and then broke apart the likely truths of it. So essentially, story. So it gave me a a very unique position. I got to watch without having to cover. And uh, I did go to a couple of the Duterte rallies because I felt at some point it was going to be important that I see this, even if I wasn't filing the story. And uh, the adulation, the applause was enormous. It There was rage, but there was also joy and there was also hope because more than any candidate I've ever seen, and perhaps he is also, he was unique in this, Well, not so unique if you look all over the world. Duterte was a man who told a good story. He was phenomenal at telling a story. He took every fear and every grievance fueled by decades of failed expectations in the Philippines. And then he gave the enemy a name. He called it the scourge of illegal drugs. He said it was the reason for the shambles the Philippines was in. And uh, he said that drugs were destroying the nation and he would destroy it and everyone involved. He had high language for it, not high, but dramatic. If your neighbor's child is an addict, kill him yourself. It will be a kindness to their parents. He said, if you don't believe him, that drugs were terrible, evil things, he would give you the drugs himself. Feed it to your children. Watch them become monsters. So in the story he told, Duterte had your back. He said the struggle ends here, today. Fuck the bleeding hearts. To hell with the bureaucracy. There are no second chances. Here was a man who would stand on the other side of the line. He would count one, two, three with a loaded gun. And he was a man who said what he meant and meant what he said would give you a warning, and then save you all. So it was different. And what was also interesting about Duterte 
was he could paint himself as every man. So every man could be Rodrigo Duterte. Mm -hmm. He would say, I'm one of you. He would say, I'm no one special. He would say, I'm just an ordinary killer. And if it were any other man, even if whatever brilliant storyteller that is, maybe it would have been just a story. But it was Rodrigo Duterte, the man who was known as the Punisher from the South, under whose watch reportedly hundreds were slaughtered by death squads. He had organized himself. When he was mayor. When he was mayor mm -hmm. of a southern city called Davao City. And uh, he could promise death because he said he had done it himself. And, you, and you, you wrote that on the eve of the election. I mean, you wrote this column that was a warning that says, you know, literally yeah. it says, the streets will run red if Duterte keeps his promise. I thought, I thought it was a bad sentence. I wrote that if Rodrigo Duterte wins, the streets will run red and you could be next. Take it as a warning. And I regretted that because it was purple prose. You know, the streets will run red. It was overdramatic. And, um, and then one day, deep into the drug war, not even very deep, maybe it was August or September, I remember sitting across, standing across a garage where a dead body had been. I had come too late. The body had been taken away. And um, I was standing on the street just beside the curb, and a man in flip-flops had a bucket of water because there was blood all over. And I knew it was a headshot because there was brain matter all over. And he was cleaning up the crime scene. It was in the aftermath of the cops picking up the bullet and, and investigating. And he was throwing water on the blood, and the blood was pouring over the curb into the gutter. And I was standing on the side, and the, the blood just splashed over my boots. And I remember that line, the streets will run red. And I remember thinking, well, that sentence was accurate. Can you... Describe a little bit for people who might not know what sort of went into this quote-unquote war. Like, what was it that drove these killings in terms of the extrajudicial killings? Like, how did they come about so people have a background on what was happening? Duterte said, if you are a drug dealer, if you are a drug addict, if you are stupid enough to keep doing it under his administration, he will destroy you. Often he would say, I will kill you myself. And then when people did die, and there were protests both locally and internationally, and there were suggestions it might be a crime against humanity, he said, I'd like to be frank with you. Are they human? What is the definition of a human being? So I think that was the running arc of the drug war mm. in that the moment you dehumanize and demonize these people, then it's okay to kill them. So there were there was a range of ways people died. At least 6,000, and we suspect more because the numbers keep changing. At least 6,000 were killed by the police in what they call legitimate police operations. The argument was it was committed in the presumption of regularity in the performance of duty. In the president's language, you don't have to kill extrajudicially because you can kill legally. 
In every one of these 6,000 cases, the police narrative was these people pulled out a gun or presented violent resistance, and the police had no choice but to fire back. Some of the language is that the police are, quote, forced to retaliate. Mm -hmm. And the running logic would be these men, even from the president, these men are always armed because these men are addicts and out of their minds. And because they are addicts and out of their minds, they would not hesitate to pull out their guns and shoot. And because they are addicts and because they are armed and because they will shoot, they will die because the police will have to put them down. So it's circular logic, but it justified quite a lot of deaths. On the other end, there are many deaths that are considered drug-related or could be considered drug-related. They are salvagings. They are drive-by shootings. They are the deaths of suspected drug dealer, what we call drug pushers, drug users, in the hands of, quote, unknown hitmen. Mm -hmm. Some of those unknown hitmen I have spoken to, they consider themselves vigilantes. So there's quite a range of deaths. The government will say its policy is not so much to put down the drug dealers or the drug addicts. It's just to end the drug scourge. So there is a process by which a suspected drug dealer or drug addict on a drug list, there are many of these lists, will surrender to the government or to the cops and promise never to do it again. So hundreds of thousands have also surrendered because they are afraid. I mean, there's almost, I hesitate to describe it as comedic, but there's a moment where you're you're writing about how they always claim that there are these gunfights. The police show up and everyone's armed all the time. They're always armed. They always have to fire back. But none of the Philippine National Police officers ever seem to get injured or struck by yeah. the bullets. They're like, they're like superheroes. Yeah. There are... I mean, it does happen. I mean, there are fatalities from the police. Sometimes they're shot. In a particular case, and I investigated, five men were shot. Mm -hmm. Allegedly, all five were armed. Allegedly, some of them were shouting, we will not be taken in alive. And um, allegedly, the cops had managed to fire bullets into each one of these moving targets in the head and torso without even getting slugged themselves. And in the end, when they kept changing the story, it became reduced to this single cop. He shot 14 bullets, 12 of which got into the head and torso, to five moving targets, and there was not even a grace on this cop. Mm -hmm. So... That's one of the edge cases. The reason it's an edge case is because they shot five men and one survived so that he could tell the story. But there are thousands of deaths. So, and there are very few people who, who can have the means to investigate. So I am uncertain about the range of this. Can you describe for people a little bit of what you and other reporters who covered this and photographers sort of did night after night. Can you walk us through what it was like to cover the situation? The height of the drug war was between July 26, upon the election of Rodrigo Duterte, to January 2017, where the war was suspended for a few months. During that height, 
It was corpse after corpse every night on the street. I didn't cover immediately. I started around August. And I was lucky because I wasn't doing it alone. There's no universe where anyone can do this alone. So I worked with what I call the night shift, uh, what foreigners call the night crawlers. It's photographers, reporters, people from different news agencies who would meet at 9 p.m. every night at the Manila Police District or the Eastern Police District, sit there and wait for the next body. And sometimes we wouldn't make it to the Manila Police District because we would hear about one body already. And then you're at the scene and then you have to go to the next and to the next. The moment I understood the velocity of the deaths was one night we were told that there was a body in front of a 7-Eleven in a particular city. So we went racing out, landed in front of the 7-Eleven, no body. So we asked the source. The source said it's there. And we're like, we're in front of it. And the source goes this street, wrong 7-Eleven. So we go different street, body in the back of the 7-Eleven beside a gas station. So we cover. Unknown man, alias Petos. I remember distinctly that his body was right across this little box where they sold sanitary napkins and other things. And um, then we got an alert again from another source saying there's a body in front of the 7-Eleven. We said, yeah, we're here. They go, no, it's a different one. And we went back to the 7-Eleven we were in 30 minutes before. Body in the ground. Mm -hmm. He was covered with a cardboard sheet and I spoke, I spoke to the witnesses and they said that the killer had walked up to the man. He was standing just outside a Jeep. He was a jeepney barker. You know, he had a side job helping people into jeepneys. He was standing right outside the jeepney. The killer walked up to him, pulled out a gun and shot him, then walk away. He didn't run away. He didn't get into a car or a motorcycle. He didn't even have on a mask. He just shot point black and walked away. That's when I understood how many the dead would be and how normal it was going to be. So that's what we did. We covered every night. And it was just corpse after corpse. You would obviously document the scene, the, the situation of the killing but also many times friends or relatives of the deceased would be at the scene or would arrive at the scene. And you mentioned earlier sort of your approach to trauma reporting and trying to minimize re-traumatizing people. And I'm wondering, what, what is that approach when you're at one of these scenes? I'll tell you about my own methodology because many people have different ones and Mine is informed also by the sort of writing I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a beat reporter. So I, I do long-form narrative investigative. And uh, what I would do, I would ask the same question every night, just so I had a method to it. I would ask, was it a body dump, a salvaging, a by bust, a drive-by? I would ask, was the killer a cop? or a vigilante. I would ask, were the hands bound? 
Was the head wrapped in tape? Was the body stuffed into the bag? Was there a gun on the ground? Was there a sign beside the body? What did the sign say? I would ask how many were dead. And uh, then I would go through the checklist, verify the street corner, interview the investigating officer, talk to the bystanders, find out if they know the dead man's name. Because that's something you rarely get to when it's a body dump. Mm -hmm. But the new thing I learned with a drug war, I learned to stand still and to listen for the screaming. Because that's when you find out where the family is. Sometimes I find out before them, and then they stumble on the scene. So I learned to walk softly, apologize, condole, keep the question simple, ask only for facts. What was his name? Where was he born? When did you see him last? How did you know he was gone? I don't ask how people feel, because that is a terrible thing to ask in the aftermath of tragedy. And then I would test it out before I got into the car. And it didn't matter if it was a crime scene or an interview because my job was to build the scene. So I knew that if I could close my eyes and see the room or the highway or the alleyway in 360 degrees, if I knew how the light fell through the window, if I knew that the cop had wiped off the blood on his T-shirt, if I remember that the blood was the consistency of tomato ketchup. If I remembered that the note folded four times, put in the back pocket of the dead man, calling him a drug addict was in Times New Roman, all caps, size 12. If I knew that the bullet cut through the left temple instead of the right. If I had the color of the shoe or the tenor of the scream or the fact that the dead man was wearing red and white bikini briefs when they stripped him on the street because they strip you on the street. That's when I knew I could go home because I had done the job because I would take the story home with me. My job is to, to show people and I can't write about what I cannot see or imagine. So when it comes to methodology, that would be mine. And, and part of that is about capturing the unique details of each situation and that's one way to cut against this, but it feels like there's a danger of there's so many killings, there's so many bodies that they start to run together in some way, e either in the public's mind, obviously, but in your mind, even. They don't with mine. I understand it does with people. And I understand in writing this book, there was a danger of uh, putting together a parade of coffins, mm. so many and so thick on the page that people wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. But because I'm narrative and because uh, I, I hold on to the detail, I remember the people and I remember the stories because part of what I understand I'm supposed to do is to take the corpse and remind people this was a person. And for me to do that, I have to see the person. So. They're never dead in my head because I talk to the families. And for them, they're alive. I, I know what they like for breakfast. I know the color of the shirt that his mother thought he was wearing but wasn't wearing. So when she saw the body, she thought he wasn't dead because he was supposed to have been wearing a yellow shirt. There is a danger to my assuming that people see one body apart from another. 
So I have to keep building detail on detail so that the person is remembered not as a corpse, but as a human being. And the other side of it is the story that the police are telling, you know, and we, we touched on this already a little bit. Some of their accounts of what happened are anywhere between difficult to believe to sort of transparently ridiculous. But you still have to engage with the police as a reporter yes. and you still have to have sources. And how did you navigate having sources in the police? And I'm thinking in particular of this Colonel Domingo that you write about. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about him and your relationship. Having those sources, but also again and again being told stories that are, let's just say, like might try your patience if you were being asked to accept them. The way I do it is first I go from the crime scene or I go from the family story and then I find the investigating officer and I do my damnedest to to get his version. Sometimes it's not necessary, although I try it anyway, because you already have an official account. You have a police report. Every story requires a police report because you need to know what the cops thing happened. Even if it's not the cops shooting, you need to know what the autopsy was, uh, what they picked up from the crime scene, whether the sign beside the body said he was a thief or a drug dealer, all of that. That's a standard. And then, then you find the investigating officer. I am not good with building police sources because I'm not beat. I do full investigations and then I publish and very often I burn sources. Mm. And I also didn't have all the years everyone else had in the police beat to make friends. So I was lucky in the course of trying to find the commanding officer for a particular crime scene. I stumbled into a colonel who was working out of a police station in Manila. And uh, he was charming. He told a good story. <laughs> His name is Colonel Robert Domingo. And uh, we discovered we liked each other, mostly because... He liked to tell stories, and I liked to record them. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote that it, he possessed the single quality most prized by long-form feature writers, myself included. He made for good copy. Yes, it's the <laughs> soundbite, you know? It's always the soundbite, and every story he told was beautifully told. He would talk about the cops being the line of defense, that this was the golden days of the police. He liked to read, and uh, he liked that I was a narrative writer. So while at that time I was investigating a case and I was interviewing him about that case, my sources pulled out. They were afraid. And what is more particular with trauma reporting than any sort of reporting is the power dynamic is very different. In most cases, if you're interviewing a cop, if you're interviewing a governor, or if you're interviewing most people, on the record is on the record. With trauma cases, on the record is not always on the record. If there is risk to life, if they are terrified, if they are re-traumatized, I am at their mercy. Mm -hmm. So if they decide no, I withdraw because I can't protect them in the aftermath. And I can't promise that the world will change because they told a story. So I lost all my sources, all the families, because they were suddenly terrified. 
my thought was that I came to them at the right time, at the right place, while they were preparing for a funeral. I sat beside them, smoked cigarettes, ran a recorder, and they just talked. And maybe they understood late what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. I tend to over-explain, but sometimes people just want to talk. Mm -hmm. So they withdrew, and I was left with a story from a colonel of Police Station 6 who was very interesting. So I wrote a profile. I thought it was a sharp one, and I thought he would be offended, and I thought, well, here we go. He liked it. <laughs> liked it so much that when I went to police station one months later, didn't know he was a new colonel, I stepped in, and there was a voice that said, Hi, Trish. He's the only one who calls me Trish. I let him. Um and then he took me to his office and showed me his wall, and there was a framed copy of my story. And then he said, I wrote like John Grisham. So I go, well, I like Grisham. So cool. And from then on, he was my source. It's not that he gave me anything. It's just that I knew I had a relationship with a single cop. And it was a dangerous time. I was investigating vigilantes. I was looking at other killers. And uh, we had... A relationship, I think. But then he turns out to be caught up in some of the the darker aspects yeah. of policing. Allegedly, there was a secret prison being run from his office. Yes, and, among other things. Yeah. And I guess part of what I'm wondering is, did you feel like there, well, here I have one source and it's sort of just my luck that he turns out to be involved in these things or is it sort of like you could throw a rock and hit a source that would be involved in these sorts of things because these sorts of things were so pervasive like were you surprised i guess huh was i surprised yes yes i was he knew what i did he understood that i drew a hard line and uh it wasn't that i thought he was clean because you never assume that off of any of the police just as a function of survival and protection you don't assume that it was just odd i say odd because there are many many stories and many many cases and the one case i was pursuing for six months was a rumor that i had heard that cops were outsourcing murder the vigilantes in another area of Manila. And I spent six months doing it. I was interviewing vigilante after vigilante. And in the end, I had four sources telling me that the man who paid them to do it, who ordered them, who gave them the list, was Colonel Robert Domingo. The first time I heard it, I, I couldn't believe it. But I, I guess it's part of the journalist too in that, oh, all right, then it's in my grasp. I get it. And at the same time, the sheer unadulterated shock of it. So it was odd and it was interesting. And for narrative writers, when the art closes, there is a relief to knowing you know as much as you can at that moment. Hmm. The other end of that is sort of your, your source relationship, as you talked about a little bit with you know, family members, people who are traumatized. 
they've had a son or a father killed or a wife or sister, what have you, and they've spoken to you. And then you write a, a little bit about how sometimes they would ask you, could you give me money for a burial, for instance? What were the sort of pressures and how did you deal with the pressures of sort of holding their stories for your writing, but also having this relationship with them that required these kind of ethical boundaries? I think that is the hardest part of the drug war, especially when I understood I was already writing a book. Hmm. You make friends with your sources. And I hesitate to use the word friend because I'm still a reporter, but you make connections. They learn to trust you. And they're walking you through the worst days of their lives. So you like them. You learn to understand them. And they learn to like you because, or at least understand you. And sometimes very early on, you can make it very clear. I am only here for a story. And for trauma reporting in the immediate aftermath, they tend to cast you in whatever role they need for that moment. Savior, social worker, therapist, friend. Friend is the most dangerous thing. Mm. And very early on, I tried to clarify. The first moment they ask me for money, I say I cannot. But you understand also why they ask for money. Who the fuck pays for the coffin? What happens when a son gets thrown in jail and they have no one to go to? These are some of the poorest people in the country. What happens when they can't afford tuition for the next month or rent or even money to eat? And I am a journalist, but I'm also human. So it's that, that weird line you have to walk. And very often, you walk it with a lot of guilt. Because after the interview, what do you do? You come out of Tondo or Navotas or Payatas. And then on the way home, you stop at Starbucks and get a cappuccino. And you know the cost of that cappuccino can pay for dinner for a whole family. But there's the ethical line too. And the line is always, you never pay for a story or anything that can be construed as paying for a story. Because the next time you show up, they might feel compelled to tell you what they don't want to say because they owe you, you owe them. And in, in the Philippines, there's something we call utang ng loob. It's the debt of the heart. It's something you keep paying because you owe someone something that is that you can never pay back. Hmm. So it's it's a difficult line to walk. And that's the most difficult part of the navigation of the entire war. It's not the cops, it's the families. Because am I forcing that line so that I can get the story? Because I can give up the story. It's stop writing it and pay for a coffin somewhere. Or as one mother told me, nobody has to know. Mm -hmm. And I, I would be a shit if I said, but I'll know. And that's enough for me. So... It's it's a strange balancing act, and I'm still balancing right now. It's never going to end because they're always going to be the story. You're always going to be the person who told their story. And when they go to you because they trust you the most, you have to keep saying, because I was the one who told the story, I'm the only one who can't help you. So 
you work around it. You contact organizations, you offer them phone numbers, you tell them who to approach. Sometimes I'll call their lawyer and say, maybe they didn't tell you, but they're in dire straits. Things mm. like that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's never enough in, in my mind. So uh, I have no answers on how to navigate. It's just a day-by-day -day thing. Yeah. So when you sat down to start writing the book, I mean, obviously you'd written these stories over time, but then, you know, you mentioned you didn't want it to be a parade of coffins, and I think it's far from that. And how did you set about structuring and organizing this amount of not just information about the drug war and there's history and there's Duterte, there's politics, but also, you know, all of these stories and sort of almost making a selection process of which you're going to tell in the context of the book. The first draft of the book was actually in third person. Hmm. It was a parade of bodies. Determining which stories went in, regardless of whether it was first or third person, for me was a function of which stories I had in full, which stories I felt I had a connection to. And there was one story that, that didn't quite fit in the book, but I felt a terrible compulsion that it had to be there. So I put it in mm -hmm. and I fought it out with editing. In, in most cases with a book, I structured chapters instead of structuring the whole arc of the book. I wasn't very sure what the arc was. I wanted to show, I knew, I was certain that the arc was that rhetoric from above becomes death on the ground. Mm -hmm. I wanted to demonstrate that. But in terms of structuring the whole book, it came very late. It was chapter by chapter coming together one after another, and then pulling out the narrative arcs of each one. As a writer, I'm, I'm an engineer. I structure paragraphs. Even the sometimes the structure of a paragraph is longer than the actual paragraph that comes out. <laughs> I think it's a debate training. You have to build the argument. But uh, I'm compulsive about it. So it was very difficult to walk away from the structure of it and say, okay, now I have to go into the book and mm -hmm. bring myself in. That was hard for me. And what drove the decision to put some of your story in there? A contractual obligation. <laughs> the strongest I, uh, driver sometimes. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> I wrote the book proposal in the U.S. I had to leave Manila just as I was publishing the vigilante story because it was a security risk for me to be there. Mm -hmm. So Rappler sent me away. I went to a writing fellowship in upstate New York called the Logan Nonfiction Fellowship. And everyone seemed to be writing a book or were proposing a book. And to get there, when they invited me, I had to make a commitment to try to uh, write a book proposal. I was there three months. I spent the last month doing the proposal. I spent the first month watching Criminal Minds on Netflix. And um, when I was writing the proposal, I guess because I was so far away, it was winter. Manila did not seem as real as it was. And it was just something I had to write. So I did it in first person. And then it got real fast. 
I had an agent, good guy. And he's been watching my back throughout the drug war, even long before I thought of writing a book. His name is David Granger. He used to be the editor of Esquire. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point when I was having trouble with the line editing of a drug war story, my old Esquire Philippines editor said, I can send it to someone else for the line edit. And it came back with David Granger. He did a line edit for a Rappler story. And then he said, you might need an agent. I go, okay. <laughs> so when I was at the fellowship, Granger took it away. And then we met publishing houses. And all of them seemed to think I would write the book in first person. And I said I preferred third person. And I think nobody took me seriously. I had thought, perhaps I should have said it out loud, that the first person, 5,000, 2,000 words I wrote was going to be a preface. <laughs> So uh, the first draft was third person. I sent it to Granger. Granger said no. So it took another year, two years to find my voice. It wasn't just finding my voice. It took two years to reckon with myself and say, it's not only the obligation, it's that I need to account for myself too, because mm -hmm. I was still Filipino. And my perspective is unique to my background, to my upbringing. It wasn't that I was moral or ethical or any of that. It was that I was a journalist. So it was hard. It was very hard. And uh, sometimes I read the book and I cringe. But why? What parts of it make you cringe? Uh, parts where there's I. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. I get it was necessary. I also think it was the only way I could actually have written the book. Kicking and screaming, it was the only way I could have written it. Maybe if I were a better writer, I would have figured out a way. I'm glad for the contractual obligation. But as with any writer, there are many things I could have written better. Well, there's another part of the writing that I really loved, which is there's writing in there about language. And you write about the way that language gets deployed and manipulated and perverted even in the drug war. Like part of what allows all of this to happen is a kind of perversion of language. And then you also get into sort of like the grammar and the syntax of that language. And the example I'm thinking of, you've mentioned actually the word salvage a couple of times and there's you know, there's a term for what happened under Duterte and extrajudicial killing is the one that, you know, people use around the world or human rights organizations, but there's this particular word salvage. And can you describe a little how that word came to represent part of this atrocity? Across the book, I broke down language a lot. I think any book about the Philippines written for any other country or that would be read in any other country inevitably becomes an explainer about the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Language was my way of explaining. But I didn't think of that when I was defining salvage because it was just a matter of fact thing. I can't tell you about the deaths without telling you what salvaging is because it's a manner of death. So salvage in the Philippines is a contronym. It means two different things at once. Anywhere in the world, salvage means rescue. Mm -hmm. It comes from the same root as uh, salvation, salvos, to save. 
But in the Philippines, it means a particular way of death. And those of us who grew up there, we don't need salvage explained to us. It's the same as any other word. In fact, for a lot of us, salvage as rescue is what needs to be explained. We don't know that. Hmm. Salvage is an easy word to use. For example, Rene was salvaged. Joshua was salvaged. Benedict was salvaged. It means that Joshua and Benedict and Rene were not saved, it means they were killed brutally. So the only way I can explain it is to tell you a story. Is that okay? Yes. So I was standing on top of a bridge in Manila. It was an overpass. And it was two in the morning. I think it was the third, the fourth body that night. And... uh the body lay in the shadow of a parapet wall. So he was a big man with big bare feet. There was a sign beside him. It said he was a drug dealer. His head had been wrapped in packing tape. No blood on the ground. So it wasn't the kill scene. He was dumped. And not only was he dumped, he was post. So you could see the police lights reflecting from the packing tape mask on his head. So it was... It was not new because it happened a lot. And that was when I heard the screaming. It came from the bottom of the bridge. It was a woman's voice. Hi. Shrill. And then she came running. And then she dropped to her knees beside me just outside the yellow crime scene tape. She said her name was Ivy. She said the dead man was her husband. She said his name was Rene and that she knew him by his feet. So the cops, they tried to take the packing tape off the face, but the adhesive had hardened. So they used a pair of scissors, one of those flimsy ones, and the scissors broke. So they used a cutter instead. They went from the edge of one ear to the chin to the edge of another until they could pull it off like a, like a hockey mask. René Desierto had been garroted. He had been suffocated. And he had been stabbed 19 times with what appeared to have been an ice pick. It was an execution. And in the months after, I visited Ivy a lot. She also became my friend. Hmm. And I would show up and she would tell me what happened. That she had lost her job. That she tried to cut open her wrist twice. That occasionally she would wrap her own head in packing tape because she wanted to know how it felt. And the way salvaging works is that it ripples. It's not just a death. It is a warning. So perhaps it is easy to look at it also as a contronym, the actual act. The act of killing is opposite the rescuing, but the act of killing is salvaged, is recycled into a warning. For everyone else, most of the signs say, drug dealer, do not follow in my footsteps. Mm-hmm. That's what salvaging is for us. Mm-hmm. And even the, even the title of the book, you break down the language behind it. This statement that, you know, you were told once some people need killing and the way it's an active sentence and not a passive sentence and, and what the verb is. And maybe you could describe that for people. 
some people need killing is not Duterte's language. He may have said it. I'm sure he said it at some point or another. But it was a vigilante who told me. He described himself as a good man, as a religious man, as someone who believed that the death of a drug dealer would make the future safer for his children. And then I asked him how he squared that, how he squared the killing with being a good man. And he said, ma'am, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not all bad. It's just some people need killing. And I heard that in 2018, I think. And it translated fast in my head because I was speaking in Filipino. And I thought it was the starkest way of explaining what was happening. It wasn't that people were the enemy or that there was a war on. It was just that they deserved to die. So the phrasing of it, the active sentence, some people need killing. The operative verb is not kill. It's need. Mm-hmm. They deserve to die. They chose their own deaths. They needed to die as a function of anything you decide is important. Some people need killing. By the function of their being drug addicts, criminals, drug dealers. And that was the success of the Duterte rhetoric. To paint people into a position that not only did they deserve to die, they were no longer people. Mm-hmm. There's a line in the book, the terrible became ordinary to thundering applause. And, you know, parts of the, this drug war were very popular And in terms of the terrible becoming ordinary, that's something that you're fighting against. I mean, that's, that's sort of what you're writing against almost. But of course, that makes me wonder when you're trying to not let it become ordinary, what effect does that have on you? Ah, that's a trauma question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get this question a lot. Uh, Usually the framing of the question is... How do you keep yourself together? How do you stay sane in the face of all the trauma? I was trying to avoid asking it exactly that way. Yeah. And thank you for that. (laughs) Because actually your question is the harder answer. The first question, I always think in my head, it is presumptuous to assume I'm sane. (laughs) But there are standard answers to that, that. And all of them are true. It matters to have a community. And I'm sure it works the same way for you. And covering the drug war had a built-in community. It's the reporters, it's the journalists, it's all of us who possibly are fucked up, but will go out and do the same thing tomorrow. And when you wonder why you keep doing it, you look at the the guy beside you who's kneeling in the blood and trying to shoot as well as he can. Mm -hmm. And then you think it's the job. This is just what we do. You know? It's a harder question to answer how it affects me. And it's something I've had to reckon with. And it was easier when I was writing the book because there was a job. It had to be done. It just had to be done. You just keep going day after day, deleting words, adding words, fact-checking, all of that. It was hard. It was brutal, but had to be done. Now I'm left with my own head. And uh, it's not a quiet place. So. I'm not going to be the person to tell you how to do this and do it safely, mentally. I will say that um, 
It's a negotiation with yourself. I will never regret doing what I did. I just have to keep paying for it. So it's having to live with all the stories that you had to hear. And it's always wondering if you did them justice, if you did something wrong, if you're going to get a phone call that's going to say because of what you wrote, someone died. It's all of that. It's all the repercussions that you keep playing out. It, it doesn't end. It's a loop. So I'm learning that to deal with it, I just have to concede the far end of it to accept whatever repercussions and then go back to it's just part of the job. Mm -hmm. Has there been anything in the response to the book that has pushed against that? I know it's not going to change what happened or necessarily change policy or anything else. I don't mean in terms of, of that. I mean in terms of feeling the value of having told the story. Ah, I didn't expect the letters. Hmm. I've been getting quite a lot of letters, quiet private ones from people in my country who have been reading it, also from other countries, because it's the story might be specific to the Philippines, but it's an old story. It's what happens when autocrats rise and we let them. But I've been getting stories from back home uh, about people who, who felt the book spoke to them, who either have voted for Duterte and regret it, or people who have been trying to quietly resist and felt they were alone in the resistance. Because it's, it's not that there's no resistance in the Philippines, there's a powerful one. Mm -hmm. It's that they felt alone inside of their own families. Families who have announced we are Duterte and maybe will have a young son who does not quite understand what's happening. So I'm grateful for that. It's, it's, uh, I've been trying to scramble for adjectives in the last couple of months. And I, I think the most appropriate would be I am honored by that. I am humbled by that. And I am grateful that it mattered for some people. And you, you're currently in the States, and I know you're planning to return to the Philippines. What are your expectations in terms of the reception of the book there and what it'll be like to go back and, and talk about it with people? For most of my career as a writer, my job ended the moment the story was published. I rarely talked about my stories. I am largely uncomfortable speaking in public. Um, but with this book and with, with, with the risks people took to tell it and the faith that they had in telling the story, I am aware of the fact that the only contact some people will have with a book is through me. Mm -hmm. The book is in English. It's expensive. So I think part of my job is to tell the story again and again. So I'll go home to do that. I'll take it as far as I can. And in terms of reception, I hope they want to hear a story. The book has been well-received in the Philippines. There is no official statement from the government, no response at all. So I don't quite know what to expect. I do know I'm going back both to tell this story and to go back on the field. I'm a Filipino field reporter. That's my field. <laughs> okay, last question for you. 
if you look back to the younger version of you that <laughs> won an international extemporaneous speaking competition, as Man. you said, representing almost this hope of, you know, being a younger person, representing the Philippines, representing hope. And now you look at, uh, you've gone out in the world a second time. This is the second time you've been like out in the broader world telling a story. It's a very different story. And do you feel, do you feel like th the same person as that person? Do you feel like you've changed in sort of dramatic ways from that person? Well, that was 20 years ago. Certainly I changed. I don't think I'm the same person last month. <laughs> so uh, certainly I've changed. Certainly I've learned a lot. I certainly didn't know at that point how much blood can fit on the inside of a man. And uh, I've been a journalist for 15 years. I don't traffic in hope. So I'm very different. I look at that kid who believed in things. And I'm glad I don't anymore. When you see many terrible things, you know you have a choice not to find them out. It's not like it explodes in my face. I seek them out. Mm -hmm. And you pay for that, but I'd rather know. I'd rather have seen, I'd rather have written the story. I suspect if I hadn't been a journalist, I'd have told the story anyway. It's, it's about keeping a record. And I'd like to keep my record as well as I can. So if all I did was write a book, was tell a story, I'm good with that. And if it matters for someday, if it honored the people whose stories I told, if it is useful when the arc of history bends somewhere else, I'm glad for that too. Well, Pat, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for taking all this time. Thanks for, thanks for writing the book. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Patricia Evangelista for coming on the show. Her book is called Some People Need Killing. This episode is edited by Gabriela Saldivia. Our show notes were by Susan Peterson. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our partners are at Box Media. I'm Evan Ratliff. As always, we really appreciate you listening to the show, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>